0: he restores my soul again psalms 23 thank you sir it's been um i don't know even fun as given this topic to just google uh mansions being restored i like seeing that stuff you can google it. it's pretty interesting mansions that have been vacant for 70 80 years or all overgrown, and then some people want to go in there and just restore it to its natural beauty, what it used to be. So when we look at He restores my soul, number one, um, He, the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, restores could be to bring back to its original sense, to repair, uh, to refresh. My soul matters, that your emotions Okay, And I also just have been thinking of when it says he restores my soul. It's not he can, it's not he will, he does. He does. So for the believer, again, remember, this is one of those um, promises um, that we should just fall into place with and just kind of line up with what God is doing anyway. At one point, those who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be 100% completely restored. Remember in Jude, it says now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless with great joy to his father. There is a day again that the believer, regardless of their actions down here, if they are a true believer in the Lord Jesus, that the Lord Jesus presents them to his father completely blameless and not only blameless, but with great joy, with great joy. And so that is the great hope. So that's why I say, let's just fall in the line. Let's just get, if that's going to happen anyway, let's just start the process now. Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, what? Abraham Lincoln's attitude um, to restoring the South after the Civil War was this. He said, God does not hold our sins against us, nor does he act like forgiveness is a favor to us, even though it is. When he was asked how would he treat the rebellious Southerners when they were defeated, he said, "I will treat them as if they had never been away." Um, so again, restoration, restoration, bringing us back to the original. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you that uh, these four words that you would restore our souls uh, applies to every culture and every time right to the human heart, that there is a depth to this, that those who struggle with what we might think minor things, that you're still the one to restore them. Our biggest problem as humans of the sin nature, that you, through the work of the cross, have been able to forgive us our sins if we would confess, and that you would do a work of restoring what we were supposed to be before sin cursed this world. Lord, there is people with situations um, that really no one understands, going through pain and suffering, um, and just life stinks at the moment, and yet you would be one who could restore their soul. Lord, there is those of us who again entangle ourselves in sin, that we would uh, be harmed by our own actions. And yet, you not only forgave us when we were saved, but to continue to do so if we confess, and you have the ability to restore our souls. And so thank you so much that you are the ultimate restorer. In your name, amen. When we talk about this in Psalms 23, I do uh, want to... Remind us, it seems like the phrase, He restores my soul. I think I've seen it on shirts and posters and stuff like that. Remember, in the context, it's a shepherd talking about sheep, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. What is He talking about when it comes to sheep? Well, Sheep become downcast. What that means is, and shepherds would know this well, is that sheep go out into the fields and things of that nature. They can get to a point where they are lying on their back. They roll over, they lie on their back, their legs flail, and they cannot get themselves upright. They are stuck. And what happens is, again, I don't know completely the science of it, so if I'm messing this stuff up, you know, you scientists correct me later, But there's gases that start to form um, inside of them. Their blood circulation gets cut off in their legs, things of that nature. And it is really a death sentence. And shepherds have even been told that sometimes they would look for buzzards and things flying around because the birds of prey would actually see and they would understand, here's a downcast sheep. He's dying. He's dying. And we're going to go swoop in when he's dead and eat him. (laughs) So this idea of he restores my soul is talking about a shepherd who is restoring sheep that they might not die that have been flipped over and they are completely helpless. They are completely helpless. So there's three things I want to do with the sheep. And then there's three things I want to talk about with the shepherd. So sorry, it might be more than five minutes. I know four words. We think this is a Sunday we get out early. Okay. Not making any promises, but, Three reasons why sheep become downcast. And then three reasons or how the good shepherd restores them. Okay, that's where we're going. Number one, why do sheep get down downcast? This idea, they're in the field and they flip over and suddenly they're on their backs and they can't get up. The number one reason why a sheep would be downcast It's because they get too comfortable. They get too comfortable with their surroundings. Um, As we probably mentioned before, there's a great book by uh, Keller, A Shepherd's Look, at Psalms 23. He would write about uh, sheep being downcast in this way, of them getting too comfortable. There is, first of all, the idea of looking for a soft spot. The sheep that chooses the comfortable, soft, round hollows in the ground, which to lie down, very often become cast. And such a situation it is so easy to roll over on their backs. They get too comfortable. They get complacent. And you could see where we might be going with this. Do we as believers just get too comfortable? Complacent would be a word, where the sheep themselves are not worried about really the true danger that is all around them and awaits for them. Nope, they'd rather much see that soft spot on the ground lay down and then suddenly they're on their back without knowing. In your Bibles, please turn to Zephaniah chapter 1. It will say this. It shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are settled on their lees, that say in the heart, the Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. Another translation would say this. It shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles and punish the men that are complacent, that say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, Neither will he do evil. Okay? The idea of settled on their leaves actually has to do with making wine. It refers to the leaves, the dregs, or the sediments of wine and other liquids that settle in the bottom of the containing vessel if it's not disturbed. Hence, the idiom refers to someone who or something that is at ease, not disturbed worried if you don't do anything with the vat of wine there's certain things that fall down again the science behind it i'm not one of those wine connoisseurs but it actually does something where almost it gets coagulated the wine itself it gets it thicker some people actually do this by purpose the point is it's not disturbed there's no worry they just leave it alone and i do think that a lot of us Um, have the attitude or the words lately of, man, this world's going crazy, Um, morals are out of um, control, Um, how politically can people do things, everyone's wrong, Um, all this kind of attitude, and yet, in your own personal life, you say all these things, but we're not doing anything about anything. We're just hanging out. (laughs) We are completely complacent. Oh, we can actually tell you what's going on that's wrong. And we can tell you how we're even nervous about it. But when it comes to what have we actually done about the situation of the culture we are in, we are completely complacent. We haven't done anything. Remember when Keith was here talking about Amos, um, just again, these minor prophets can sometimes um, stir you up to, to... Does it sound like God's really mean or what is it about the the Israelites where they got to this point? And remember, he was reading that chapter, how many times he wanted them to return to him, but they would not go back to the Lord. They would not go back to the Lord. And the idea here in Zephaniah is, again, the Israelites are sitting there completely complacent. And again, the Lord is trying to get their attention, get their attention to the point where they're thinking, God doesn't really do good, God doesn't really do evil, he's just kind of there, let's just do life, nothing really matters. We don't have to worry about God punishing, we don't have to worry about God blessing, we don't have to worry, he's not really involved. Let's just hang out. And it's because of that attitude, where numerous times in the minor prophets, the Lord comes and out of his mercy... Out of his mercy, he punishes. Because the human heart will get to the point where they're so complacent that they will never leave, they will never change. So God in his mercy has to punish just to wake them up. Sheep get downcast. Are we complacent? There was a great pianist, piano player, I should have said that, I can never pronounce that word, Badowski, who achieved tremendous popularity in America, yet he said, there has been a few moments when I have known complete satisfaction, but only a few. I have rarely been free from the disturbing realization that my playing might have been even better. The world considered his playing near perfection, but he remained unsatisfied and kept constantly at the job of improving his talent. Now again, this borders on we know it's only by the Lord and not our own will. However, are we those that actually with our spiritual walks have become complacent? We're not trying to get better. We're okay. We're okay. And this is where we get into the comparing game for sure. As long as I look more mature than you or I feel like I've done a few more ministries than you, I'm okay. It's not okay. Remember the Lord when he talked about working for different wages and what is it to you? If the Lord has given you gifts and you certain ministries and the Lord has given you um Resources to use, that's between you and him, and you've got to get better. (laughs) You can't become complacent. There's another reason why sheep become downcast. These things get attached to their wool, and it weighs them down. To where when they might lie down, Now there's a weight distribution that's uneven that they really didn't consider, and now they can kind of roll over on their back without them thinking about it, and they're stuck. And the interesting thing about this, to me, is it's not necessarily the lamb's fault. You could say it's their fault when they want to be comfortable and complacent and lay down in those nice little ravines where it'll be hard to get up, but this one is just going through life. They walk, and briars get attached to their wool, Sometimes the morning dew can actually soak the bottom of them and actually weigh them down. The wool saturates and picks up the water, and it weighs them down. Do we remember Hebrews 12? It says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by such great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us lay aside every weight. It is hard enough for us to weigh, to lay aside our sins. And yet the goal is not only are we laying aside our sins, we are also having a frame of mind that says, what else in my life is keeping me down, period. Period. From serving the Lord, from being involved, from having a very personal and close relationship with him, what weights are weighing me down. And it can be people, it can be jobs, it can be things that don't necessarily seem to be that bad or even at that fault. But I'd like to remind us this morning that we should not be a people that are weighed down. In fact, as we read this morning, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The idea of feeling weighed down and just oppressed and you just have so much on your plate is not good. It's not good. And it can make the sheep get weighed down to the point where now they are completely helpless and on their backs. And it might not have even been their fault. Are we aware of weights? Are we aware of the things in our lives that are bringing us down? You know, as a teacher, we go through this with backpacks all the time. (laughs) Sometimes I would take a student's backpack or even my daughter's, and my shoulder becomes separated from its socket. And I say, why are you carrying this much weight around? This is crazy. And everyone has different answers. But you know what? It becomes normal. You just put the backpack on, you add more books, you walk through the hall. What else can we do? And then you wonder why necks hurt and shoulders hurt. And sometimes it's as simple as stop having the weight of the backpack on you. Be aware of it. Don't just sling it off your shoulder. You can actually get hurt. Be aware of the weight. Be aware. The third reason why she become downcast is simply cuz they're fat. They're fat. But I want to remind us how we get fat. I know that sounds funny. But it is not just eating that is the problem. It's basically taking in more energy than you are spending. Okay, it is not eating necessarily that is the problem. And again, for the third time, there's a lot of science behind this. Let's just stay basic. Okay, but if you take in more energy than you use, your energy is stored as fat. So is eating the problem or is it that we're not using the energy that has been put into our bodies? So for Michael Phelps. Remember, in the height of his Olympic time, this is what he ate. We shared the story. I I, I love reading this every time. For breakfast, he had three fried egg sandwiches with cheese, tomatoes, lettuce, fried onions, and mayonnaise, followed by three chocolate chip pancakes. That was not all. After sandwiches and pancakes, he was in time for a five-egg omelet, three sugar-coated slices of French toast, a bowl of grits, and two cups of coffee to wash down everything. For lunch, he'd have a half a kilogram of pasta, two large ham and cheese sandwiches on white bread smothered with mayonnaise, and another set of energy drinks. For dinner, he'd usually have a pound of pasta with carbonara sauce, a large pizza, and energy drinks. They say at the height of his training, he would eat eight to 10,000 calories a day, typically five times the amount of a normal person. And yet, he was not fat. He was kind of ripped because he was burning that much energy in the pool. He would spend probably five to six hours a day swimming, swimming, swimming. And so I just want to remind us, like with Phelps, that we as believers, hey, eat as much as you can with spiritual food. Eat it, eat it, consume it. Read your Bible, go to the Bible conferences, go to church, listen to your stuff online. Get as much as you can. But if you take all that information and do absolutely nothing with it, what is the point? A lot of us believers are fat. We can actually quote scripture, but we can't apply it. We can tell you doctrines, but if you look at our lifestyles, they don't match up. We're fat. I would like to remind us simply of James, be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You have got to apply and exercise what you learn about. You cannot just even sit here on a Sunday morning and go, that was a great thought, I agree, and not do anything about it. the testimony of a Christian when a non-Christian starts talking to them and they hear, you know so much scripture, and yet I don't want anything to do with your lifestyle. We could be fat. Sheep are sheep. We are all sheep that have gone astray. Guys, it's easy for us to become downcast. Is easy. What does a good shepherd do? He restores our soul. Number one, he pursues. This has been a theme running through my mind for the last couple of months. I don't know why. So if I even said these things before, I apologize. But he is always looking for a downcast. In fact, if you hear about shepherds, they are constantly counting their sheep. Is there any missing? I have to know because they can be out in fields and then one is downcast and you have no idea. That is the whole point of the story of which one of you has 100 sheep and you count 99. So you're freaking out about the one that's lost. It's probably downcast. It's laying on its back somewhere ready to be eaten or life just completely killed and destroyed. And so the shepherd has a concern. So the shepherd, every single time he's out in the field, is constantly going back and forth, back and forth, counting his sheep making sure none of them are downcast because he doesn't want them to be in danger. This happens all the time. If you've ever been in charge of any kind of youth event or as teachers, I'm in public all the time with my kids. I count my students 20 times a trip, at least because if one's missing, I lose my job. It has nothing to do with the kid. It has to do with me. i the worst thing in the world is I have 10 students and I only see nine. That's a bad day on the job. so I'm constantly counting. hey guys, eight, not 10. Where's it yeah, okay. that's what a shepherd does and that's what God the Father does as the good shepherd. He is constantly in pursuit when you, for maybe your own fault, have become downcast. He pursues you. Turn to Genesis chapter 16. The story of Hagar again. Let's start in verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. If you go down, verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son, you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. Verse 13. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? Remember with Hagar, Israel's not even formed yet. Okay, so this is literally God talking to Abraham. All this is happening. She is from Egypt. Uh, she might have heard of this God of Abraham, but it is in the early times of human history with many gods out there. Are you the God who actually saw me you found me and the reason this story is interesting to me and it could just be uh, i can't be 100 percent dogmatic about it but it said he heard her affliction not her prayers he heard the pain and so some would say that god made this move all on his own that hagar did not even cry out she didn't even know who to cry out to that he heard affliction and he found her. The sheep are not those who go out, get cast on their back and then do a little yelp for the shepherd saying, hey, guess what? I'm in this position again. Many times they might not even think of the shepherd. I don't know. But I'm telling you, if you're downcast, always remember that God pursues you, that he pursues you and he looks for you. And he finds you where you are. He's the ultimate pursuing God, regardless of what we think about him. Another thing, besides the pursuing God, is it's personal. What happens when that shepherd finds that little sheep? I'll read you again, because he, as a shepherd, says it a lot better for me. <laughs> The, um, This is from um, the book we were talking about, A Shepherd's Look, at Psalm 23. As soon as I had reached the cast ewe, my first impulse was to pick it up. Tenderly, I would roll the sheep over on its side. This would relieve the pressure of gases in the rumen. If she had been down for long, I would have to lift her onto her feet. Then straddling the sheep with my legs, I would hold her erect, rubbing her limbs to restore the circulation to her legs. This often took quite a little time. When the sheep started to walk again, she often just stumbled, staggered, and collapsed in a heap once more. All the time I worked on the cast sheep, I would talk to it gently. When are you going to learn to stand on your own feet? I'm so glad I found you in time, you rascal. Little by little, the sheep would regain its equilibrium. It would start to walk steadily and surely by and by it would dash away to rejoin the others set free from its fears and frustrations given another chance to live another longer a little longer all of this conveyed to my heart and mind when I repeat the simple statement he restores my soul. There is something intensely personal intensely tender intensely endearing yet intensely fraught with danger in the picture. On one hand, there is the sheep so helpless, so utterly immobilized through otherwise strong and healthy and flourishing. On the other hand, there's the attentive owner, quick and ready to come to its rescue, ever patient and tender and helpful. When we are downcast, the whole point of restoring our souls, it's personal. He not only pursues, he's also personal. As we said here before, he has to get the sheep up. Stand it up. Sometimes, and again, all these parallels are so beautiful. A sheep that is downcast might want to stand up and just run away from the shepherd as soon as it's on its feet, which would be even worse for the sheep because the gases are still there, the circulation is not there, and it will probably become downcast right away again. So this shepherd not only has to hold it, but sometimes straddle it and make sure it doesn't run away talking to it gently, rubbing its legs so making sure the circulation is coming back into the sheep, restoring it so its ability can go be with the other sheep and just do life, just do life. And that's what your good shepherd does when you're downcast. When you're down and out and you're on your back and you really have nothing else to do, you have no other options, you are stuck in life. And he comes and pursues and he picks you up and he goes, hey, it's okay, I'm here. And he starts to gently take his hand and work with you to restore you to be able to function in life. The shepherd does not walk up to the sheep and just kick it and go, what's wrong with you? There's also that point of that other Message, a good shepherd cares individually. He doesn't go, well, I have 100 sheep, one missing, I still got 99% left. Let them die, especially if that thing has run away from me over and over and over again. Why should I waste my time as a shepherd dealing with a little sheep that is just completely running away and completely lazy, fat, whatever the reason, it's getting downcast? Why should I pursue That's not the attitude of the shepherd. Constantly walking up to the sheep, restoring it, restoring it, restoring it, because the shepherd loves it. Loves the sheep. The reason the Bible has said, cast all your cares upon him is because He actually cares for you. It is not some legalistic, religious thing that we do. That we somehow have to check in with a certain prayer when we mess up. It is the fact that we can cast our cares upon him because he actually cares. He actually cares. And so we can cry out to the Lord, regardless of we put ourselves in the environment, We're the ones that messed up. We still get to cry out and say, God, I need you. I need you. Not only is he personal, not only does he pursue, he is purposeful. The whole point of restoration is so that you can be used by him. It is not just restore to go have fun. So, Isaiah chapter 58 Again, he's talking to Israel. It says, Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. And you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. The restorer. Same word here as he restores my soul. Again, we know some of Israel's past, right? Is that this great city and or cities were destroyed, were wiped out from war. They disowned the Lord. They followed after other gods. God brought in other countries and wiped them out. All their buildings, their history, their culture, everything that God had promised them was wiped out. And yet, God is constantly bringing them back saying, listen, we're going to fix this. We're going to restore the restore of streets to dwell in. So not only was this a picture of just literal roads that might have had rubble and stuff completely blocking the roads, but if you remember in these times, there was buildings along the road where people lived in. So at this point, when he's talking to them, it's all been broken up. Where they lived, and their cities, their defense walls, everything has been messed up. But why does God want to come in and say, Israel, the restorer of streets to dwell in, does he literally just want them to just kind of rebuild the dwellings and rebuild the roads and then go, hey, go live wherever you want. The whole point is to restore what he promised in the beginning. I'm going to give you a land so you can dwell here and it might be well with you and your children. I want you to live right here. And in you and your sin and all of your mistakes, you guys ruined it. You broke down city walls and you messed up the roads and there's nothing left here but rubble. But I'm going to bring it back. I will restore this the way it was originally intended to be. You're going to live right here with me. There's nothing worse to me Nothing worse than some of these people that restore a beautiful, like, 57 Chevy convertible and then leave it in the garage and never, ever use it. Now, again, if you're one of those car people, I apologize. I'm just telling you from the outside, it's annoying. Okay? It's annoying. Go drive the car. It was not meant to be looked at in a garage. It was meant to be on the road. Right? God restores our souls, not just because he wants to or has to or any of that. He wants you to live this life. He wants you to actually be successful at life. He's restoring you back to the original, like before you messed up. Now going, let's do a work together. Let's do a work there's so many times we get downcast as believers, and that's it for some of you. You hit a wall, you went downcast, and that's it. There's no future for you, so to speak. That's what you think. Guys, there is a whole life that he wants you to have, and it's always right there. He's always willing to restore. He's always willing to build up. Always, always, always. Let him restore your soul. Let him restore it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for being the restorer of the soul. Lord, help us to understand that balance of uh, even if we had never sinned from this moment on, there is still so much for us to do in simply following who you are. There is loving people and loving you and doing life correctly. That the goal is not simply to sin, but the goal is to live a life That says, I follow Christ. I do what he does. I say what he says. Oh Lord, thank you for being able to restore. In your name, amen.